Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emily Kinedo, Jessica Rowley and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation and psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions for consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or are interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know or get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we are so honoured to have Lale Labrick. Lale is a leadership and management advisor at Hackney Education. She's worked in inner city primary schools for over 20 years. Prior to joining Hackney Education, Lale served as an executive head teacher for six inner city London schools. She was also an NLE linked to a teaching school as part of her work. She supported women leading in education and black and minority ethnic leadership programmes. Before becoming an executive head teacher, She worked in a range of roles, many of them in the field of inclusion and curriculum development. She also served as a school governor. Lale has published articles in the Chartered College of Teaching journals and the journals of early years education. In recent years, she has supported school leaders through management and system changes. Lale believes that schools are at their best when their vision and ethos are clearly communicated by school leaders to all stakeholders and the culture of school is one of high ambition for their communities. We're so lucky to have Lale here today and we hope you enjoy listening to today's episode. Lale, this is the first time we've ever recorded a podcast in person, so it's absolutely brilliant to both be able to see and and hear you. Just for the general introduction, can you tell us a little bit about your current role and practice context? So firstly, thank you. Really, thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting (laughs) to be out of kind of doing the usual day-to-day work that I do. So I'm currently um, the principal primary school improvement partner in Hackney, which means I um, I work within the Hackney education team uh, within the local authority and I lead the primary team um, who supports schools around Hackney and actually beyond we've got some schools outside our borough that I work with mainly on school improvement but we also work really closely with other departments such as educational psychologists Mm. within the borough speech and language therapists and also we have an award-winning as of last week um strategy that is in schools which is um cams uh, in in schools we call it well-being and mental health in schools whams oh, i know so i actually was um part of delivering part of that service um after a couple of years that it was set up as a wide range and you won an award well i didn't well our team did <laughs> the team that set it up um yeah it's great. So focus of your role is more at the kind of whole school level, whole organizational level, not necessarily yeah. working with individual like children or young people. Yes. But working much more with the leadership team within the school and kind of advancing student outcomes. Yeah. So a lot of work with um with um senior leaders, governors, middle leaders, subject leaders, um, special educational needs coordinators, really looking at um, children's outcomes but also access to the curriculum okay. and also the impact of teachers continuous professional development so okay. we in terms of how you got there and yes. it sounds like a hugely exciting job where did you start in terms of your initial professional background so many years ago <laughs> before mobile phones <laughs> 
I actually did a psychology degree with a combined, oh, yeah, with sociology. Oh. And then I was thinking about becoming an educational psychologist, but then I went into teaching. Okay. Right, actually, people talk about austerity now, but I remember the earlier mid 1990s and really when you went into mainstream uh, state owned primary schools. Mm there was a level of kind of lack of investment yeah. that you saw. Yeah. So I went into just general primary teaching um, and really, really enjoyed it. So my specialism was mainly in early years. Yeah. Um, and then um, moved on and did a, a lot of subject teaching and had a break uh, in the kind of the start of the noughties and then came back and was a special educational needs coordinator but and kind of went up the ladder that mm-hmm. way deputy head teacher for one school and then a group of schools and then head teacher and executive head teacher and now what I do beside my kind of my initial teacher training the biggest thing that had an impact on my professional development was actually working in yeah. schools yeah but when I came back from maternity leave just at the time when there was a bit of investment in schools in in mm-hmm. the UK and they were bringing in the first time around, they were bringing in evidence-based practice. Okay. And I did training um, on Marie Clay's research oh, yeah, yeah, on reading, reading recovery. Yeah. And I don't think I have, I, there isn't honestly, even like a week that goes by that I don't refer mm-hmm. in my mind to what she'd said in that oh, research. Incredible. In fact, in fact, I have got one of her books that I'm reading <laughs> on the train. Carrying it around. <laughs> and what she says in yeah. there, from back whenever she did her research is relevant today yeah it's amazing it's fascinating I was just thinking of something there when you were talking about your initial teacher training and the kind of continuing professional development that you've had do you or even just thinking about initial teacher training now do you feel teachers are trained enough or given enough support in terms of how to work with other professionals coming in whether that's educational psychologists speech and language therapists social workers are our teachers trained and well prepared enough to do that kind of partnership working together because you know there's been a review hasn't there mm. and there's been an update in and um, well actually the initial teacher training is being changed yet again so there's a um consultation period mm. at the mm. moment and changes are due to come in in, a, in 18 months time and then there's been a change in induction of newly qualified teachers and all of the stuff that you look at that that the kind of those new to the profession are doing don't really reflect on the whole picture of a child yeah Yeah. so you really don't think about other external professionals that you work with until you come across them until Mm. you're working or it's a very brief kind of touch on when you have an educational psychologist or Mm. speech and language or they talk about children's needs. So if a ch- child has an ADHD need, yeah. or so how do you spot it? And then who would you be, who would you be referring them to? Yeah. But it's very basic. Okay. This is where that well-being and mental health in schools program, yeah. Hackney Bottom, um, WAMS. One of the first things that you do going into a school and you match them to a, um, a children's mental health worker. You have a, a three-way meeting and as a school improvement partner, you sit there and you go, this meeting is that you guys are going to be working together regularly every mm-hmm. week, but let, let's talk through um, the camps worker. You tell the school leader, yeah. who's kind of, is going to be your link person, what's the culture of work like in the NHS? Okay. What are the expectations mm-hmm. for you? Uh, wow. Your holidays, let's talk basics. 
okay. your hours of work, your holidays, what your professional development and kind of what's their kind of paperwork expectations. Yeah. And then they share that. And then the school leader tells them, well, actually, don't send me anything at mm-hmm. Easter because I'm not here and I won't read it. Uh, okay. or, and I wish you didn't take time out of my allocated time to do your paperwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I do my paperwork in my own time okay. between five and seven o'clock in the evening. Okay. <laughs> so bringing the two cultures together, and I don't think young teachers really, or even kind of sub- subject leaders, people who've been teaching for a while are really aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The different cultures and the different organizations yeah. that people may come from. Because I guess that's, one of the things that we feel we want to try to invest in in initial training of educational psychologists is how to work well with parents, how to work well with carers, how to work well with teachers. But I don't know whether we've ever really spent enough time thinking, are those partners being well trained enough to work with the educational psychologist? And whatever about you know teachers and teaching assistants and, and other staff in school, I suppose there is that dimension of parents only learn about working in partnership with others. For Mary, probably the first model is how do I work with my child's teacher? Mm. And how do I kind of engage in a relationship, yeah. that, you know, a kind of a shared approach for learning? Are there things that you feel over the years that you've you've seen teachers or other professionals do that really help foster that kind of connection with parents? And Particularly, and I suppose we may be getting involved with parents when there's a concern or a worry about their child's development and about some of the issues that may, you know, very understandably happen for parents and carers where there's a lot of feeling around yeah. kind of that particular that first maybe contact and how to kind of make a good start of a relationship with one another. Where I've seen it be successful mm, is, a, yeah. is the kind of teachers who are reflective. Yeah. And they have got the time or they are challenged if they're not reflective they're challenged by their special educational needs coordinator to change the way that their language of how they're communicating a child's need Mm. um, and seeing the child and then reflecting and going well if I was the parent how would I want that communication to happen yeah Yeah. um so that's where I've seen it really kind of when it's been effective because they've seen it from the other side but you know I do appreciate when a teacher's got well these days in, in London they don't have 30 children but they do have a class yeah, and absolutely. they have to think about everybody and it and kind of it can become frustrating if they've tried one or two strategies that was recommended and it's not working and then they just want a quick conversation with a parent that have a long has a long-term impact yeah and they don't realize and then they just hand the child over to yeah. the, the special education yeah. coordinator or, or somebody yeah. else I mean, in, in your work as a special education needs coordinator or, or SANCO, um, were there, I suppose there's two questions, is back then, back then, yeah. the um, <laughs> were there things that you're like, I really wish my EP would do this, this, this and this? So that's the back then. And looking back at it now, are there things that you would have changed how the EP worked or things that you wish that they wouldn't have done or, or yeah, would you change it in any way looking back on it now? If we're talking like 20 years ago, when actually the, the role of special educational needs coordinator came about because mm-hmm. schools mm-hmm. didn't really have them until Before, the late 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. The, when the educational psychologists came, 
okay there, there was a difference right because then I, I mean maybe it's just me of my generation but I just think when we did refer I think I had less than a handful of children that I, I kind of wanted to refer because it was clearly communicated that special educational needs was when a child had a significant okay. need the money wasn't there if you if you needed a child who had who needed catch up with reading yeah. Yeah. you know to be called send plus or special educational needs plus mm, on the register yeah. but when the educational psychologist used to come I used to feel that they were just t- like a few steps removed from what they used to do as a teacher you know because they've had the yeah. teaching practice and so on yeah. and or they used to come on a day that the child seemed to just settle in and do everything <laughs> you go please believe me when I tell you let's look at a wider evidence yeah give me something that I can work on and have more of a kind of immediate conversation over the next three weeks. Okay. Because it used to be a one-stop, I'll see you now, and then I'll come back in three months if I was lucky in that okay. school. I think things have changed. And we all know the kind of the percentage of children that are now kind of sure. considered to be special educational needs has really rocketed. And I think the educational psychologists now see a wide spectrum of needs from very mild to what I would consider to be genuine, significant special educational needs. Mm. And there are times when I just wish that educational psychologists would turn around to schools and say, let's talk about what special educational needs is. Let's go back to that developmental levels that the children have. Let's go back to what the school needs to kind of deliver Mm. to every child and the amount of time you try something and you really look if they move on in their learning before we go down a path of assessments and diagnosis that would label that child. Yeah. Um, And currently, I know that kind of sometimes in schools, lots of people say, oh, my educational psychologist doesn't really get it, just tells me to worry about this one child. But I actually think that they see it from the other side, that if you don't have a go for this one child, the gap will get bigger and bigger. So you do have to put all your resources to really seeing whether that child has got significant needs. So I don't know, it's the cold culture of expectations. I, yeah. I think the ed psych, educational psychologists want to be helpful and want to, see, but there aren't enough of them. Yeah. And the schools have... I think on the flip side of it, sometimes quite high expectations of just a range of children that they'll probably line up for people to see. Do you think there's any connection between the ways in which funding for meeting special educational needs have changed over the years and the way schools either want to or feel like they have to make use of of their EP? Is there a connection between the the kind of role of the EP and kind of resources and funding for for SEN. Well, in, in maintained schools, they still get quite a. I mean, I think they get a really good deal in terms of the funding, but schools do feel that if they get their educational psychologist, then they better kind of make sure they have enough children that they see, so that they're not wasting kind of that that yeah. one session. And then often when something else happens or there's a kind of an incident or something that needs some thinking and considering for a child they often say well I don't have another session now for another six months and this child needs immediate attention um 
And that's when I've started to say to them, let's do a team around the child meeting. Let's look at what you've done. Let's get parents in. Let's have those conversations because do we need the educational psychologist in? Because that's a really specialist role. Mm. The analogy would be that you're going to see a GP because, you know, you've got, you need the flu jab or you've had the flu or you've got a sore Mm. throat. But actually, if they do a test and they suddenly go, that's not a sore throat, there's something else, you need a specialist. And at that moment, that specialist is an educational psychologist. Mm. So it's got to be a significant need. And I think there's a bit of over-reliance on just, I've got this money, I've spent it. And schools are now got smaller budgets, but they're now paying more for additional sessions. Sure. So they feel that they have to put more children. Yeah. It was making me think about that part of the code of practice that says every teacher is a teacher of special educational needs. And that analogy with with GPs, I'm just Mm. wondering about whether, yeah, I don't, are, are enough messages getting into the system that teachers can feel confident in their own skill and ability, that they can feel like, actually there are things I can do yeah I'm just wondering about the wider messages that might be might be in the system that preclude teachers from feeling like actually I'm an expert on teaching and learning and I can I can make some sort of difference um to this child's learning and and kind of their time in school I think over the past since the pandemic Mm. interestingly a lot of schools that I went into when they were looking at adjusting their curriculum and updating it started from looking at things like Rose and Shine's principles yeah. or yeah. Um, looking at um, really kind of uh, child development, yeah. kind of metacognition. And suddenly you saw a shift in the way that school leaders felt that continuous professional development should be delivered it should be much more about um children's kind of development learning evidence-based practice so and i and this thing about adaptive teaching strategies Mm. and making a massive distinction that you stop doing the differentiation but you adapt your teaching in the moment it's all really kind of is it's coming together Mm. But you have to be in schools where they really believe in it. Yeah. And you see those schools. And interestingly, you see those schools and they they also get the external validation through Ofsted now. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, this year in particular, I've seen a lot more schools actually either retain or be graded as outstanding because they've gone in. And what the inspectorate talks about is all teachers are tailor making the learning in the classroom for their children and they know those children well Mm. but what they know very well is how children remember more how children uh, learn new concepts um or and retrieval practice Mm. metacognition stuff like that that they talk about so yeah i think it's much more about teachers as experts but teachers being given those tools start thinking in a different way so UCL IOE did this lesson study thing where you actually when you went in instead of monitoring what the teacher's doing you literally turn around and watch what the children are getting out of that lesson Mm. and the more you do that kind of and team teach together so the teacher can also pause while you're teaching for the second part that you'd plan and she watches her children goes back to Mari Clay as well it really helps them to go, oh, yeah, well, it's the process of that child learning something or making a mistake and you catching them in that moment and saying, oh, you you did that, you wrote your number five like this, but let's have a go mm. at stopping it in that moment. 
and then they don't make that mistake again. Watching the children more is actually really, really key. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, I'm interested in that because Zara, you're out in schools now, you know, in your newly qualified year. You know, Lale highlighting the kind of emphasis in CPD now on mm. foundational kind of teaching strategies, the kind of evidence-based for teaching. It's like the John Hassey school feedback, erosion, you know, all of those really more researched strategies yeah. for, for teaching. Do you see in both of your roles, I suppose, much of a join-up between perhaps EPs kind of coming in and trying to talk with those teachers about children for whom maybe some of those strategies haven't had the impact, maybe, that, mm -hmm. you know, the teacher is wanting, um, and how to kind of still foster that sense of every teacher is responsible for the learning of every child in their classroom, including those who have SCN. I'm just wondering about whether the messaging feels a bit separated from each mm. other and is it is it joined together enough? I mean, it's quite interesting because as you were talking, Lele, I was in a school this morning and I saw such amazing adaptive teaching. And I had a consultation with this teacher and he was saying how overwhelmed he is and actually how doing all the adapt. He's like, I basically had to plan four different lessons. Like You could tell he was so passionate, but he was also like, but there's still times where one of one or two of the children are not able to pick up on one of those adaptive kind of sessions and then kind of I think also the impact of the increase in diagnoses of children yeah. with ADHD with ASD with dyslexia yeah. and how I don't know I guess I've noticed sometimes the label feels quite anxiety provoking because yeah. they feel like they have to do something different maybe even though some mm. of the adaptive strategies yeah, they're doing already well. Well. yeah um, so this is where school leadership is really important mm. because actually it it really is down to the school leader, the head teacher, executive to say, I really don't want you to be doing paperwork. I want you in that moment, yeah. in that live lesson, no way you can take these children. But the important bit is they have to build supportive systems around the teachers for me, it's always saying to the head teacher, well, if I walk around your school and I ask your year three teacher, so you've just done some work on um, teaching about the European continent, mm. but what's the next bit? Do you know what they're going to do in year four? Do you know what they mm. did last year? The teacher needs to have that wide subject knowledge yeah. themselves. Yeah. Know that curriculum of that school really well. So they need to be co-authors of it, yeah. have ownership of it. But as a senior leader, then you can release them and say, you can do this in that moment. Yeah. And all I want to see at the end of it is a child who can articulate it back at me. Yeah. But I think a lot of people still think if they don't write it down in their planning or if they're not marking or if they're not mm -hmm. doing that differentiation, they're not doing the right job. You know, yeah. you have to, it's almost like we, we all love a bit of paperwork, <laughs> <laughs> making it up. Yeah, I think I'm also wondering just in terms of that, you know, paperwork and uh, needing to do those things. Like, I guess what I've picked up on quite a bit from my primary schools is that that the worry is not about what's happening right now. And if they can articulate it right now, that's great. But what happens when they go to secondary school? Yeah. So I find that kind of focus on paperwork quite interesting because it feels like it's not even for them sometimes. No. And interestingly, I don't think secondary schools do look at that paper. I suppose it's interesting, isn't it? Speaking to something about like the anxiousness within within the school system like am I getting it right for 
this child who has a label, am I getting it right if there's an inspection, for example? Am I assuming, you know, the head teacher has a right way that I should be doing this? And kind of how do we create those spaces where people can actually have, you mentioned earlier, reflection. Where are the spaces for reflection on your teaching practice or reflecting on your feelings about your teaching practice even? Um, because I, you know, I suppose I'm partially thinking about, about supervision. Yes. Um, and the, I know that in a, in schools, that word can sometimes mean I'm, I'm somehow a bad teacher or I'm doing something mm -hmm. wrong, therefore I need additional supervision. I'm meaning it more in the sense of where is the space I have for learning about my professional role and how I'm taking up my professional role? Is it consistent enough across schools now that those spaces for reflection on practice and reflection on professional practice are well preserved enough for teachers and, and teaching assistants? No, I'm teaching assistants. Um, it's a it's a bigger question because I'm constantly saying, how are you sorting out the CPD for the for mm -hmm. anyway? But mm -hmm. Mentoring is coming in, yeah. but much more for early career teachers, right? In those two years of their induction. Um, interestingly, some of the senior leaders that um, I work with currently, they have a mixture now, whereas before they didn't. It used to be a one-off thing. The, the mixture is coaching practice mm. or genuine reflective supervision. Um, but it's not cascaded down. Okay. okay. So it's still yeah. quite patchy or different, different places and actually what's really interesting and what is that educational psychologists do have within their kind of mm. professional capacity to bring this up in conversation because I think class teachers are open to it mm. and what they would like is kind of um opportunities yes. somehow to get to have something um but who provides it in a mm. school is a mm. is a bigger thing and I often think it's 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 difficult because if they've paid for an educational psychologist time, as we were talking about it before, they've got a long list of children that they want you to see and observe yeah. and give yeah. immediately produce um, a solution. But actually, if there was an opportunity that if you know at the lunchtime after school that that you provided that group supervision modeling mm. and just gave them this skeleton of it, yeah. I think I think class teachers and teaching assistants would be open to it because mm. there are plenty of teaching assistants who are really underdeveloped and all it's just about doing operational practical stuff mm. and they work with the most complex yeah. children yeah um kind of also on a social emotional level as well Absolutely. they work with you know they're the first contact point often for parents mm. as well mm. um and they live in the community of the parents. So it's a, yeah, mm. they would really benefit for some kind of investment in their kind of. Do you have, this is putting you on the spot, so feel free to say no, but do you have any advice for an educational psychologist who really wants to offer supervision um, to, to a school they're working with? about how they could best engage the head teacher? Because ultimately it is the head teacher who, you know, leads the school, has, you know, clearly needs to make decisions about what would be right for their staff team at that time. But is there any ways in which Ed Sykes could appropriately approach the head teacher or engage the head teacher in a way that would actually be meaningful for, for the head? Any, 
Um, so going back to this, sorry, I bang on about the, the, the WAMs, the well-being <laughs> and mental health in schools. One of the things that the CAMS worker, so the Children and Mental Health um, Service worker does after discussing the different cultures of work, they don't work directly with children okay. uh, um, or individual families. But what, one of the first things they do is staff training. Okay. So they offer zones of regulation training, mm -hmm. they offer trauma-informed practices, and um, they work with senior leaders to develop and modify their behaviour policies. Okay. And then they kind of work kind of across the board with teachers sometimes and look at groups of children. So I've seen head teachers firstly be really skeptical, like this is a waste of my time. I, I've already planned my uh, kind of staff training for the rest of the year. No one wants to do zones of regulation. And then when they start doing it and it pays off, they see that it kind of reduces the levels of anxiety yes. and some of yeah. the issues that keep the kind of repetitive issues that kept popping up. So for an educational psychologist, if I was ahead and came to me and said, I'm seeing a pattern and yeah. what would really help to begin with, it, this might not pay off, but some of my time could be used yeah. to deliver certain kind of supervision sessions mm. because I think the longer term impact would be this so it's almost like that early intervention those issues that you have bubbling up as a head teacher if you know this supervision and you know you mentioned zones of regulations put in actually by doing that and doing that well it will reduce the bubbling up of those issues that you're yeah. facing as a head and then what it's a longer term impact isn't it because mm. what you say is that to begin with you might think that some of my time is just used in that way and I know there's a long list but I have negotiated with your special mm -hmm. educational needs coordinator I am seeing the most urgent cases but this would be something that would have a longer term impact on the culture of work and practice in your yeah. school and just on that point I suppose about kind of the culture of work and practice in schools right now yeah on a temperature check basis and you both are in and out of school quite a bit in different roles what, what is it like in in schools right now in terms of mm -hmm. you know how people are feeling or or kind of some of the pressures or priorities that are that's going on right now so what i'm seeing is um it's very london specific at the moment right i do work with some schools outside london um and i they don't have the same needs but what i'm seeing is um, schools emptying yes of course because of the fall in pupil numbers yeah so yeah. there's a fall in pupil numbers due to low birth rates um impact of brexit where lots of families went back to sure. their kind of european um you know countries um but also housing so if you were in temporary housing which by temporary anything between seven to ten years mm -hmm. now you're being housed Right, so but not necessarily in London. Local. No, okay. you're, so okay. some families are being housed in Birmingham. Okay, uh, lots of families were. Do you remember there was a time when they were being housed just kind of south of London in uh, suburbs like mm. Croydon, but Croydon's now has no more housing. Mm. So people are going further and further, further away. and further away. Um, and so 
there's a big impact on finances for head teachers and then the impact um on class teachers is that often they you know suddenly find themselves in a in a smaller class but more needy class children who suddenly come mid-year from another country where they've never been to school or a war-torn country Mm -hmm. and a child that's traumatized Mm -hmm. um like there was a school that had a Syrian girl in yeah. um, who was six and seven, but just couldn't sit in the classroom and was traumatized and would run and scream and hide. And just it just took up an adult to follow her. And, yeah. and that didn't stop for about half a term, which was six weeks. So falling people almost less finances, which then means kind of bigger pressures. And sure. then children who come in with little language in terms of... yeah even if their mother tongue is English and the impact of kind of the follow on impact of those children who were in the early years had the COVID and didn't go out and socialize. Um, but I do see a range. So I see schools where leadership feels confident and they yeah. retain their staff through a range of strategies that are not monetarily linked. Interesting. Um, and they manage the behaviour. So interestingly, I had two separate um, Her Majesty's inspectorates from Ofsted, who in two separate inspections about three weeks ago, both said, if we walk into a school and behaviour is overall good, we know children are learning, so actually that school is on a good place. Okay. That immediately, you could see it relieve the pressure mm. from the whole thing. So there are schools that are delivering that, but then there, there are schools where leadership is not specific enough they're not in the classroom enough they just if there is a child that is kind of in quoted (laughs) inverted commas kicking off yeah they really don't want to deal with it and it's their special educational needs coordinator get in there and sort it or call the local authority they need to move okay and they're losing staff and they're losing kind of that kind of continuity that mm. they need, the narrative that they need of people knowing that child and mm. having tried everything. So I see I see a range, but but I, money is one of them. Yeah. I worry about lots of schools. Um, we had a school that was popularish, mm. um, but literally they had, I think, from a class of 30 that they were could have had a capacity of 30 children entering school and reception in September. They only had nine applications, and out of those nine, seven, uh, seven have turned up. For a prospective class of 30. Wow. And so it, immediately that meant the head teacher had to think about restructure because actually the previous year they didn't, they didn't have as many children either no, so they had to vertically them. group them so it's now reception year one class which meant now the curriculum has to change wow. all that work that they did during the pandemic it's so. quite it's such a i mean you and i have spoken about this before but the role of the head teacher amazing and not in any way kind of denigrate the kind of impact that you can have as a head teacher you know true genuine and I think there's very few roles now where you can truly see actually what I do on a daily basis has an immediate direct impact on the lives of others however the the impossibility of being responsible for finance the roof leaking staff turnover fully role offset it's just 
Yeah, just the fierce pressure that people who take up a leadership position in a school are current. And then I suppose bringing us back to the idea of reflective spaces for head teachers yeah. and the kind of space and time that's afforded to them. Um, and it's potentially been quite a lonely yeah. role. Um, obviously, the collegiality of maybe peer colleagues and support from, from school improvement partners or other parts of the system that, that head teachers can draw on. But nevertheless, a huge amount of quite relentless pressure, I it guess, to, to kind of get it right or to do the right thing and respond to change quite rapidly. And to be open. Yeah. Just be honest and yeah. say, this is how it is. And actually, interestingly, so if I go back and talk about ed the link with educational psychology, is that there are often leads, educational psychology leads who have <laughs> who've been doing their role for like two decades yeah. and and all they see is what is the school not providing for those children yeah. that they work with. And they it gets to a point where instead of having a collegiate open dialogue, yeah. it becomes, well, you're not doing this, and then you're not doing the head teacher saying, well, you know, they, they're always criticizing my staff. So, you know, I'll just do what they're saying. And they don't really, what they tell me, the objective is not right. Mm. Da, 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 da. So that real relationship yeah. breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to kind of cultural understanding. Mm. And the only way to do that is when you actually have someone who's willing to just in a really gentle and quiet way say, do you know, have you thought about the narrative in a different way? Have you thought that's that's the way that the head teacher is trying to communicate with you? The reason why they're not doing the Nelly program for the young children is a language program mm. is well, actually, because maybe it's, it's just too time consuming and they're doing something else that works. Yeah. Mm. And maybe you could get in there and work alongside them mm -hmm. or, you know, or saying to the head teacher, well, actually, I, I need to challenge you on that. That objective mm -hmm. was probably quite right. But are you giving enough time to yeah. be your support staff to deliver it or to your teacher? Um, sometimes you do need a little bit of gentle kind of yeah, nudging as well. It me think, though, about the, the need for the sort of helpful third to come in. It's a bit like when maybe, you know, there's a, a difficulty between a school and a family you know a third that can come in and say yeah. can you see each other's perspective about when there is a breakdown of relationship between the ep and and the school the head teacher the senko the importance of there being a third who can come in and help people yeah. see it's not a binary right or wrong you're bad yeah. i'm good but that there's some way of being able to shift perspectives think, but how do you facilitate those good relationships within the local system so that you do have somebody who can help kind of come in and facilitate maybe that relationship building? These days, a lot of, so if you work with a multi-academy trust, they have these directors of learning or director of education, and they're really key people because they're about professional development and you know, okay. pedagogy. Okay. So they're not about line management and mm -hmm. they're not executive head teachers. If you've got that, then then it's a good place to start dialogue. Yeah, it's a good um, tip. But it, a lot of it is also personality. Yeah. So in a funny way, I actually think it's easier to start with the educational psychologist because you're coming from a therapeutic place. Mm -hmm. So kind of saying to people, always bear in mind that if they're grating on you, you have to think, 
<laughs> they're coming from a good place but sure just... <laughs> but that em- it's that empathy generation i guess yeah. or empathy magnifier about kind of i don't think any of us necessarily know what it's like for example to be a teacher in a class in 2023 with everything that's going on mm. and the capacity to be able to shift perspective and of course if you know as a parent or as an ep where you're focusing on one child I think it can be very easy to think, but why won't they just do it this way? Or why can't they take the advice? When being able to see it from the other person's point of view, and most people are probably trying their best endeavors to try and make something work and a bit of compassion, I guess, for for each other. I wanted to ask you, actually, kind of moving away from this slightly, you mentioned evidence-based practice. And Mm. clearly, you know, educational psychology is a profession where people are quite bothered by evidence-based practice mm. teaching. You've got things like the um, Education Endowment Foundation, mm. you've got the, the teacher toolkit, kind of a real interest in, well, what's the evidence base underpinning sort of pedagogy and or learning programs and strategies? You know, from your point of view as a you know, supporting, say, busy head teachers or, or busy groups of teachers. What what kinds of things are happening in schools where staff can access an evidence base, including, I suppose, generating their own and, mm. you know, really that a lesson study and kind yeah, of yeah. generating data. So one question just about kind of access to the evidence base and then a second one around, is there a role for EPs and being able to bring some of the evidence base in relation to work that they may be doing with with children or groups of children. Yeah. So the evidence-based practice, I just think it's become more and more interestingly kind of centre stage for teachers. Mm. It didn't really, I don't remember it when I was training or when I was kind of in my class teaching years. It wasn't at the forefront unless mm. you went to do a diploma at one of the universities okay. or something like that, you know. Whereas now it is at the Educational Endowment Fund to begin with just produced reports that people just read the kind of the main bullet points and just gone, yep, but didn't pay attention to it. But it has made yeah, it, it has. it's become much yeah. more of a um, part of teacher uh, training. But in primary, I, I, I can't mm. comment. I'm sure it's the same in secondary in, in most cases. But the main difference is now when the teachers are being kind of the initial teacher training, they have to engage with some kind of a project. As early career teachers, they okay. have to engage with some kind of a classroom based project. So almost like researching your own yes. practice, kind of having a question. Okay, I yeah. didn't know that. And, really and all of the national professional qualification NPQs now yeah. have a research element. They've been totally updated and revamped. And like I've I've worked with some head teachers who recently are completing an eighteen month national professional qualification for executive leadership. Okay. The three people that all three of them, so it's a hundred percent, um, small selection, but <laughs> they've become so much more reflective about oh, really? leadership strategies, impact, mm. business management, human resource management, but then going back to impact on their staff yeah it's been really interesting it's become more important and actually i think it's had more impact in in classroom practice yeah i was just thinking about all of the training that um in initial training for educational psychology there is on research research methods design Mm -hmm. different types of research and not ever having made the connection with that sort of development within teaching about there being a skill set that could be shared because I think 
I remember working with, with you, Lila, years ago about the idea of classroom teachers in their own classroom are closest to the problems. Yeah. They know what the questions are. They don't need them imposed from somebody yeah. very, very far away. But actually knowing that your your ed psych has got that skill set in, yes. in research design, who could be just a, a sort of a person to bounce ideas off about how might we go about kind of designing a project and what kind of data could we collect that and how could we so share that it'd be such a re and really partnering around research and practice in like a whether a classroom or a phase or or a school it would just be such a a, a brilliant way of using the kind of collaboration that's what reading recovery was for me yeah i know but the thing was whilst you were you learned all the theory you were working with an expert who was your teacher leader who was doing a master's on this, but you worked with children and you discussed those children intensely and you talked about how what their learning was like, what they were really good at, mm. what what would really work for them because they were really good at this. And um, okay, there's a gap here, but I think I can adapt it in this way. And I found that really, really kind of um, powerful yeah. in terms of impact. And an educational psychologist working alongside a teacher to be really curious mm. about those complex children, but actually widen it to a group of children and yeah. go, let's just make this into a really fun project. Yeah, yeah. And I know I can help you with methodology, but let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Right. And make uh, gi I'll give you some easy reading stuff, you know, nothing big. And then we'll talk about it online. Maybe you message me, do you know, but it does require some support and something or leaving something with a special educational needs coordinator and saying, sure. we've done this. I'll be, I don't have the time to touch base regularly, but you're here. Maybe yeah. we could do it that way. And how it could work that way. Well, I guess I suppose one of the things I'm thinking about though, is if we only ever work with individual children where there is a, a kind of a crisis or an yeah. urgency, there's not much capacity building around yeah. kind of, well, what would happen if we just got in a little bit earlier and we we did things before they reached that kind of escalation point. But I think you'd end up coming up with research projects that answered questions that actually related to practice as opposed mm -hmm. to somebody else sort of sitting <laughs> quite far away. And then, not, you know, that's not, not a bad thing, but something that's really bespoke to a specific school community. Um, and I think the other thing I suppose I'm thinking about is that skill in being able to critically appraise the research. Mm. Like when you look at, say, things that are generated by various think tanks, for example, about the evidence base under that program or that program and how to decide maybe mm. as a head teacher or as a teacher, well, what should I be investing in? Are there particular mm. programs that are better than others? That even that skill set of working together and saying, well, actually, where was this research done? Who did it? Who was included? Who wasn't? Who was left out? How does this relate to the group of children and young people in this school? Um, again, I think just another really helpful strategy that could be that could be drawn on. A, a lot of schools more. that are beginning to set up these things that they call nurture provisions. Yeah. Have you seen them? Yeah. So there's a variety of practice. Yeah. Some really concerning ones where actually children are just basically just accessing a room, 
and I, you just don't see the impact yeah. and somewhere really there's focused kind of support mm. with the idea that they go back into class and those are the places I think educational psychologists could have massive impact in fact mm. in one of the schools that's where I've seen it this uh, special educational needs coordinator who was also the deputy head worked with the educational psychologist and said the pattern of kind of our um, needs across the school is mainly yeah. children who are ASCs who have autistic yeah. um kind of they're on the autistic spectrum and most of them are non-verbal I want to set up a nurture room but I want with the aim of putting them back in the class gradually but using the nurture provision to kind of upskill like yeah. to give the children something that they then would be able to go back more and the educational psychologist trained three people mainly support staff mm -hmm. experienced support staff talk to them about very kind of smart objectives every child had a lovely like a what i like to call like their own personal a kind of journey book which was shared That's with nice. parents but the main objective was they were back in class and after two terms, this term when I went back in, so it lasts kind of from the beginning of 2023 to the spring and summer term, mm. I kept saying, well, let's go and have a look. How long are they in here? This time I went back in and children were in class. So I had to say, so how often do they come out? And the answer was, well, whenever they need it. Oh, but they were in class. And I'm talking about children who are maybe in year three now, so seven and eight not still fairly non-verbal but able to sit in the main teaching part of the lesson which is not what they were able to do before no. this intervention no. and with place. their adults sitting next to them but actually having something so there was a lesson about Rosa Parks yeah. um kind of and the mm. children were talking about it and the equalities and opportunities and changing things and the child had um a lolly stick puppet of Rosa Parks, which I had to colour in and say Rosa Parks and pretend that they were getting on the bus oh. and people were telling them to get off the bus. Wow. And that was access to the curriculum, but she could sit for 15 minutes. Which and had do not that been the kind of, yeah. Without that's... making kind of loud noises, disrupting everybody and okay. being dysregulated. Yeah, wow. I that... Go on, sorry. That was an impact <laughs> of education. <laughs> Direct what I but so that sounds like an amazing kind of collaboration. And I guess one of the questions we wanted yeah. to ask you was around collaboration and what you kind of feel are some of the key skills or aspects of collaborating like genuinely and authentically yeah. with teachers and, and senior leaders to, to kind of create that connection. Yeah. And where both parties feel, you know, respected and in a partnership as opposed to are, yeah, are there ways in which we can better promote or, or work in collaboration with one another? Difficulty is, is a lot of it is relational, isn't it? Yeah. So if you have an educational psychologist team that changes, you just don't have that opportunity to build that relationship Should. as a school practitioner. My thing would be to always look for the, the bigger picture across a school mm. and try and tap in. Yeah. Because otherwise you're as an educational psychologist you're then viewed very narrowly just mm -hmm. go into this class and see this child yeah. which actually is is needed yeah but then the wider impact which we were just talking mm -hmm. about is actually about being able to come out and say oh I've just seen this in this class what are the patterns mm -hmm. but be having the time to do it together is yeah. so relational in yeah. schools I wonder whether a lot of the time the first point of contact as an ed psych is generally this 
the center of the special education needs coordinator and i imagine in like a particularly a bigger say secondary or one of you know a bigger yeah. form entry primary Much harder. yeah would the head teacher even know who the ep was would they have met them would they have had that relationship together and almost maybe a, an unfounded anxiety about well i can't go i'm just you know that idea that you could it's it is okay to sort of say hello to the head teacher yeah. and introduce just to start to build that relationship i mean do you feel heads know who their ep is and or are you encouraged or you know for you going into schools are do you find yourself relating at all with the head teacher or the wider teaching team or does it tend to be with the sort of similar members of staff i think it varies depending on school culture and yeah. depending on schools generally yeah. like i have moved services i know the head teacher of two of my schools i have three at the moment so i, I know a few mm. but yeah, i think it also just depends on again like the relationship and in the purpose of that relationship why have you built that relationship why have yeah. you gone to speak to the head teacher like what yeah. is it about and I think because your first point of contact tends to be the same co I think there's sometimes a worry and I'm, I'll speak from my own experience like a worry for me that I don't want the same co to think I'm going above her head yeah so I don't want her to think oh I'm just gonna bypass yeah. yeah yeah so I think um it's a fine balance and yeah it tends to come with experiences um so I think it it varies in school hierarchy systems as well. Sometimes yeah. the Senko is senior leadership. Exactly. Yes. And yeah. sometimes we have joint meetings. Sometimes Senko is not senior leadership. And then in which case it feels like a whole nother level that yeah. you have to navigate. Yeah. 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 Um, and it'll be harder in secondaries because there's so many layers of leadership. Uh, yeah. And sometimes the important, but I think that thing of trust with a special educational needs coordinator is massive, that you're not going over their heads. Yeah, but sometimes the organic building mm. of a project that will yeah. be really useful to everybody, and then suddenly everybody's talking about it. But also, I think having the confidence to think that you know your EP could do something alongside the work they do with yeah. individual children is knowing that actually they do have a skill set that they have something to offer the school more generally. Um, and I think you know your point, Ali, about noticing what are their themes and passions know the school yeah. like what's going on for them what are the priorities what are the kind of things that are troubling them and being able to reasonably shape what you can offer that could potentially meet a need in that school and I think that is something maybe that you know could invest more in is how to kind of better prepare people to know I love that idea of the um in your award-winning project <laughs> Wow. wow, I didn't set it up. Wow. Yes. Yes. So, but the idea of just actually, before you start getting into doing any planning, who are you? Where yeah. do you come from? What are the kind, like that, for me, I would kind of call it contracting. Yeah. It's kind of, yes. this is where I'm coming from. This is where you're coming from. How are we going to agree that we'll work together in a way that will yes. be effective for both of us? And I don't know whether, maybe because it just seems so obvious, it doesn't get invested enough or talked about enough and then just kind of you find yourself you know whether it's six months or six years down the line thinking I really wish we'd had that conversation yeah. because perhaps some of the challenges that we've had would have been avoided or maybe not have gotten as big if we'd actually really been able to speak to one another yes. about how how we might work that point about it being relational like that getting to know your EP I suppose there is the high vacancy rate within yeah. educational psychology services as well so taking account of kind of getting to know one another 
Are there any other things that you would want EPs to be doing or not doing to really build that kind of collaboration with either teachers, SENCOs or, or head teachers? Tough question, actually, because I think EPs also have a really difficult job, isn't it? Because they, they have to come in at the time when either kind of provide that kind of long-term assessment of a child before they get their diagnosis or come in at a crisis point. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, I often find that what the schools really need is someone to say to them, okay, let's just go back. This will eventually sort itself out. Mm -hmm. But in this moment in time, let's build a relationship together. And this is how I work. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what you expect as are going to match. And actually it's your expectation. I might not meet your expectation mm. or I might meet it and I need this from you um, in return. Because often what I find that probably educational psychologists get is a lot of offloading from teachers who feel powerless to do something. Yeah. And then they talk to the special educational needs coordinator who always says, well, I can't sort that problem. I just need you to set, give me something that I, that would work. It's difficult, but I really do think it's about the longer term working together yeah. and saying this will eventually sort itself out. Mm. We're going to go through a crisis moment together now, mm. but I'm here to support you and we'll get through yeah, it. I think we'll, we'll be, even the use of the, we will yes. get through it. We will be together. I wonder whether that does foster the sense of actually, this isn't about kind of us poking holes in each other and what everyone's done wrong or being alone. Maybe the idea of the collegial we yes, in and of itself. The sense of resilience is mm. really that sense of not colluding in that you're going through a really firefighting moment and you feel powerless. And actually what I'm giving you as an objective for this job might not sort it out immediately. It might fail. I mean, we'll try something else. Yeah. But kind of giving the class teachers a sense of resilience that you have to just... This is spiraling, but stay with it. It's yeah. uncomfortable. The child is having crisis moments, but the good thing is I'm here now. Yeah. Or your oh, special educational needs mm. coordinator is aware of this, or your head teacher is aware of this. There are lots of people aware of this mm. now. Sometimes a little bit of you can't give up at this moment. I'm. Let's see it through that. I'm a bit more of an old school of resilience. Yeah. In a nice way, educational psychologist being able to say, we will work this through and you are here and I'm yeah. listening, but kind of be resilient. It would, yeah, there will be an answer. No, it's making me think about that thing about the teachers carry around all these feelings of like, I worry I'm doing the wrong thing yeah. or I worry about the impact that that's having on somebody else or I, you know, feel I'm I'm upset that someone was shouting at me or whatever it might yeah. be, but to be able to be with somebody that you can say those feelings to yeah. and not be told, well, you're a terrible teacher for having those <laughs> feelings. Um, the importance of having that space to be able to be heard and be listened to, and for somebody to still be there at the end of that, yeah. saying, and this is something that we'll we'll like you say might fail, might not yeah. work straight away, but we're together. You might not want to come in tomorrow because you know this yeah. child is going to kind of throw something at you. It's that reflective way of let's just take it one step back. Yeah, and I suppose that point about being quite caught up in a very reactive, high yeah. emotional state, understandably, because it's yeah. a very emotional context. It sounds like somebody who's able to come in at a slightly maybe just kind of calmer level, not to say that anyone's being not calm, but just to be able to kind of say, 
it will be okay. Um, mm -hmm. It does sound like it's an important function to sort of to take up, I guess. And the one thing it is that I just feel like if you're a class teacher, you don't get the reflective supervision. It's always for people who are sometimes non-class based or have yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And that moment when the educational psychologist is talking things through with you, mm. you you know, is a moment actually you can get some therapeutic answers for mm. you. Yeah, that just that space to be able yeah. to go, gosh, I did have that feeling. Yeah. And it was tough. Yeah. And you're yeah. an active agent, you know, as an educational psychologist saying, well, you let's reflect. You did this and the impact was that. And you felt like this, but the child reacted yeah. like yeah. that. Or the child did this and you re it made you feel like this, so it reacted. Do you know? Creating a space for reflection. Yeah. What what Lali just said there now is kind of making me think about there are, will always be times when either party needs to challenge the other, mm -hmm. you know. I guess, um, you know, thinking about building that trusting relationship and that sometimes we would either have to be challenged as an EP or mm -hmm. we might have to challenge uh, a teacher on, yeah. you know, views or, or potential discrimination yeah. and you know how might be the best way of going about that and what could you know make it feel like a non-judgmental kind of space but also um maybe like shifting a narrative or like just bringing something new to the table in that sense I think that's really important actually I've often found that the people who've made me change the way I think about things are people who've gently said and they still do it so I have a colleague who does that so um and says well actually the reason why they said that was because of this. And it's not it's not a bad thing that they said your service was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but let's look at it. They did have a point. I think as an educational psychologist, it's really, really kind of key to gently, and you do know who you can have a more of an open conversation with, which, which practitioners, whether it's a special educational needs coordinator, mm -hmm. head teacher about the culture of work in their school, or, or as a class teacher or a support staff. But there are certain classroom teachers who are either at the end of their tether yeah. or from the moment that something has gone on with this child that they've got a negative experience. So they're finding it hard to hear it. But I think the more they hear it in a gentle way, that actually, have you thought about this? That the way you're talking about this child is making you react. Mm -hmm. And it's a difficult one to hear. Yeah. It's a difficult one. And you might get a very negative reaction to begin with. But I, I do think it's a respons professional responsibility to do it. Because we're going back to the Equalities Act yeah. as well. And the rights of the child. Um, and and the mental health and well-being being such a big thing for everybody at every level. You know, teachers. Absolutely. Children. Yeah. But... Thinking about mental health and well-being doesn't mean that you have to always be nice and always say gently mm. the things that you think the other person would hear most. There have been times when I've when I've seen it in practice. Yeah. You've done it. Uh, <laughs> but you have said, what is it that the oh the, the CAMS workers, the, the children and mental um, and adult mental health um, practitioners say is I'm curious that have you thought about the fact that this child is behaving like that towards you is because mm. you actually took that pencil away in that moment and they were being naughty, but did it require you to take that pencil away? And and it doesn't matter what the other 29 children get out of that, because actually children do know that there are times where you have to do you have to deal with one particular child in a different way. Mm. 
children are probably a lot saying. more sort of accepting and they tolerant are. where we might think oh gosh the children will be judging us thinking that we're not being yeah. fair and doing whereas i, I don't they know whether we always give children enough credit yeah for the fact they see that the gray yeah they maybe more so i think yeah. sometimes than adults do but i do think it's a professional responsibility I've seen it done, as I said, and saying you've done it. There's a lot. I'm really curious about why you said that, or I, I think of it like this. And there are teachers who will constantly challenge you and say, well, I don't think so. Mm. But it's interesting. And then I think that the, the only other way, if when you get people really stuck in their way, and there aren't many, is you have to have a kind of the next step conversation with a special educational mm. coordinator mm. saying well you know I tried to challenge but would it be useful if we did it three ways mm. yeah because I often think it is that yeah we would be interested in as well I guess is and I think the danger of this conversation is as if there's never any challenge needed toward an external agency so it's not to no, say that that's yeah. you know it's only ever one way but I guess things that you know, I know that some of the trainees have spoken about is say patterns of referral from a from a special education needs coordinator. We seem to get either an over representation of one particular group or an under representation of another group. Um, and I that point about being able to gently challenge. I guess the other thing I'm hearing you say, Lally, is that you need to do like the you avoidance to- of a conversation or a question is not the professional thing to do and people will get some people will get will have umbrage against and mm. going well i and you know complain to their heads and actually the only other way is to just say well actually i did have a really good conversation about this this and the challenge with special educational needs coordinators is a lot two or three folds but one of them is actually saying to them if you feel that kind of you're fighting for this child and for this mm. for this teacher for your school i totally get it but do you really think that actually by kind of just going down this avenue, we will reach a resolution that's working for everybody? Mm. Because often they, they've been told that you have to fight and you have to do it like this. Mm. And I've had head teachers who now like a train, bullet train of kind of conversation. Yeah. And eventually I always could take them back to process and say, well, the, the answer is no. Or saying, did you realise that actually 70% of your referrals and they go, well, this is a real picture. And you go, well, is it a real picture? Okay. How often do you observe in classrooms? Mm-hmm. What does it tell you? Do parents agree with you? And why is it that is it just your school that gets 70% ASD children? or So something you know, about being able to make good use of data. Good use of data. You know, so taking being, them yeah. back, challenging them about their attitude to say, will it get this child to what they need or your school? Because if you think this is the way you fight. Mm. Because they, they have to, this fighting for your school. Do you know what's really interesting? In the Senko forums mm. often are the places where people are brought together to talk things through. And yeah. that's really had impact. And a kind of a level of talking to other special educational needs coordinators. I wonder if that peer support means something different or distinctive because it's somebody who's been in yeah. your position or is in your position. But the other thing I suppose is really striking is that kind of idea that people have been almost encultured to fight. There's only yeah. one way to do it, and you have to go this way. And yeah, just the wondering about this the systems that have been set up that have let people get into such horrible situations for themselves, or they feel like if I'm if I'm not fighting, I'm doing yeah. the wrong thing, or I'm not doing the right thing by my school. 
and you know going back to right to the beginning of what we were talking about right because I really really think special educational needs is about significant needs mm. and then there needs to be a kind of a national conversation because there's so many variabilities right so there's a borough that you know based were issuing educational healthcare plans which follow the children until they're 25 as young adults mm. for behavioral yeah. reasons and that had gone out in some some other boroughs like a decade ago mm. because they just saw behavioral issues as being a much bigger thing as a communication yeah. of something else yeah so there's a variability and I think coming back with data and saying well actually when I'm looking at your school or I'm looking at your borough it makes me think about because what we really want to do is something a cultural shift in your school yeah. what do we do yeah do you think there are people who feel differently to you Ali in terms of seeing SEN that significant need like there's people who obviously have a very different perspective do you think that would that makes a difference to how they might you know um make use of the EP or how they might want to do their work and what are some of the challenges when you have such a variation in perspective within within schools people have been who are kind of directors of education but they've got um special educational needs as their main three kind of are beginning to open up that dialogue mm. now Mm. because funding is changing yeah. the funding formula that was linked to all of this is changing and and that means a whole lot of mindset change for practitioners on a ground level in schools mm. there's so much pressure on cramming in things in a school life if you're in a mainstream setting you have to teach you know especially in primary school you have to teach all sorts of subjects with two lots of different children from different backgrounds um get them to a certain kind of um, outcomes by the time they leave you and you don't have the headspace to sit and think well actually some children need a little bit more input and, and they will take a little bit longer yeah they might yeah. take two years to get to that reading yeah. level but they will get there it's just a slower catch-up but it's coming because when the funding and there's massive funding deficits yeah. yeah in a lot of local authorities which they can't carry um before what I've learned from work in local authority is that if anybody had an underspend in different departments nothing to do with special educational needs that would just all get absorbed into at the end of the uh, financial year into the special education mm -hmm. needs budget because their deficit was the biggest that and social care so to try and kind of level it off mm -hmm. but it's That's not possible anymore though is it in terms of just the financial picture has changed so much. It's interesting then that was perhaps going to be the prompt for that culture shift yeah. and that mindset shift that actually the resourcing isn't going to be the yeah. same. Therefore, we may need to think about things slightly slightly differently. And I think the worry sometimes, understandably, for, for parents for schools is, well, that's just a money thing changing and meaning that my, you know, my child or my school will lose out. But I think the flip side of it of funding to the level that each individual child is carrying money means that the stuff that you could do in terms of prevention yeah. and kind of high quality experiences for everybody and then that early intervention so not waiting on things until things get to be so um poor an outcome for that child or young person that you have to seek individual kind of linked funding 
I think the system is is kind of almost setting up itself that you're not really investing in early intervention and prevention. And actually, so many children are really missing out and maybe wouldn't need mm. that high level of funding. Attack. That is not to say, of course, there's always going to be children mm. who will need something quite special. Um, but there are also a range of ways in which I think we can really improve the quality for, for all children and people. Got two things left that we'd like to ask you. So one is for it's about training really, um, and wanting to make sure that whether it's people in initial training or for qualified and experienced EPs who are planning their, their continuing professional development, and they want to make sure the training, the CPD they do is really relevant to current practice, to kind of current issues. So given the kind of role that you have right now, Larry, what sort of things are you hoping? Is covered in initial training for EdSites. What are the kinds of things that, if you're thinking, gosh, I really hope qualified EPs are getting some CPD in this area or that area? What what would you be wanting people to focus on? Well, I'm biased. I was going to say the people the people need to read Marie Clay's. <laughs> <laughs> and by that is uh, she has a book actually. The one I'm reading about something about disadvantage. It's different outcomes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. By different paths to common outcomes, okay. and interestingly, she talks about in it. So it wasn't just about metacognition and things like that. She was talking about how cultural diversity yeah. was in there. It, it, you know, when she was talking about it, adaptive teaching is in there. I was like, you did this in the eighties. <laughs> it's like all hail. So reading that that kind of research that is so relevant mm. even now um because then you can put it into practice as projects with schools mm. and really mm. expand that kind of effectiveness of what they deliver on a daily level for children but also a lot more of kind of those therapeutic reflective supervision spaces and how to set and, and how to set it yeah. up and how to set it up actually for different purposes mm. right those triangular conversations where you're just actually discussing the same child mm. uh, um, within the school and or actually talking about strategy or sometimes it's just therapeutic for for the staff who are involved to or, have a space to be able to be heard yeah. and to be yeah. to be listened to if there was one thing that you've read apart from Mary Clay yeah. over the years that you thought gosh that's changed how I think about teaching or that's changed how I think about special educational needs is there any one book journal article chapter that you think gosh that really had an impact actually there was one it's actually not linked to education but it was much more about strategy and working together it's a book called fish mm -hmm. you see it's a mm -hmm. tiny book and it's about a fish market in that actually the states and how the people work that. together to make it really successful oh wow yeah and and that was really interesting. It's a very short read. Can I say a huge well, thank, thank you, you so much for for coming and sharing all that you've shared? It was really really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's really really great to be here. Thank you.